From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for welcoming me into your home, your long-haul truck, your RV, your camper, your taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And a big howdy to all of you, of course, listening in on one of our affiliate stations. We're up to about, oh, three dozen, I think, across Canada, the United States. Those of you who are uh, listening to the podcast at TalkZone.com, those of you who take the show wherever you go on your mobile device with our app, there's the Conspiracy Show app, free download. And those of you who check us out on the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, if you haven't already, please take a moment and subscribe to the YouTube channel. All right. Author Matt Swain is here with a, another collection of ghost stories, and this time he's focusing on World War II. Matt is a journalist who currently works as a research writer at Penn State. He's worked as a reporter and as a music reviewer for several newspapers and online outlets. He's a regular contributor to the recently revitalized version of Omni Magazine called Omni Reboot. He writes the Anti-Matter column, which looks at fringe science and the paranormal. Previous books include Haunted Rock and Roll. More Haunted Rock and Roll, Ghosts of Country Music, and America's Haunted Universities. And his latest is Haunted World War II, Soldier Spirits, Ghost Planes, and Strange Synchronicities. Tell me about the USS Yorktown. Sure. And, and I should should back this up because, uh, you know, the fact that we have uh, ships like the USS Yorktown, uh, the Lexington, and some of the other ones mentioned in the book is really because there were some smart, dedicated people who decided that they didn't want these ships that had, you know, performed so admirably during the war to end up in scrap heaps. And so, you know, I always like to say if you are, are near these, um, nearby these places or visiting towns where they have these ships, you should really visit and support them, uh, you know, first because it's it is living history, and second of all, if you're into the paranormal, uh, these places are pro- these ships are probably uh, the most haunted spots you'll get. And the other thing is that uh, the folks involved in these uh, floating museums seem to be okay with with the kind of ghostly activity and the haunted activity that go along. A lot of them have ghost tours and things like that. So uh, the USS Yorktown, at least uh, on the East Coast, because it's in uh, – it's uh, – I guess it, I guess you would say it's uh, um, in Charleston Harbor at a place called Patriots Point. And, uh, you know, the Yorktown is this, is really uh, – has an illustrious history as an aircraft carrier. It has uh, 11 battle stars, and I think that you get a battle star for every major battle you're in. So uh, the nickname of, of this, this ship was the Fighting Lady, and, of course, it was in so much activity. And, again, you see this connection between the intensity of conflict and the intensity of the haunted activity. And so this, this ship has really become a focus of a lot of paranormal investigators. Uh, there were a few that I mentioned in the book. Um, one uh, ghost that apparently haunts the Yorktown, they call it uh, Shadow Ed, um, and the Ed stands for Enemy Designated, which is an old World War II term. But people have seen this shadow 
on the various decks and uh, one paranormal investigator uh in particular spent most of the night trying to chase this this uh shadow down he would see the shadow uh chase after it it would disappear he would be at a deck or two below and and hear something moving on top he would go up up a deck uh and and it would vanish so there's uh stories certainly like that um, another kind of cool story was that there was a volunteer. Uh, a lot of times they, they allow uh, groups to stay overnight uh, in on New Yorktown. And uh, a lot of times it's student groups and, and things like that as a sort of a cool field trip. And, and one time uh, a volunteer was um, serving breakfast to a scout troop. Uh, they got up and left and she went out, straightened everything up. Uh, got rid of the plates and uh, cleaned up that and straightened up all the chairs, went back into the kitchen. When she came back out, the place was a mess again. The chairs were uh, upset and pushed away from the table. Everything was just uh, topsy-turvy. And so there was no way that you would get a, a group of Boy Scouts to run back and just mess things up intentionally. So she claimed it was related to some of the paranormal activity that occurred uh, you know, in the USS Yorktown. Have you ever gone on any of these uh, these uh, haunted tours? I've never gone on any of the haunted tours, but I did visit uh, – I was on New Yorktown, and I also visited the USS uh, North Carolina. And this was probably uh, 15 years ago before I even started uh, writing about uh, about the paranormal. So for me, I – you know, again, going back to what I said before, when you're on these ships and you realize the sacrifice that these these men and and women made, and you kind of understand the somewhat, I guess they would live. You know, my impression was that you would almost live with a constant sense of either foreboding or anxiety, and when you're on these ships, you really feel that presence. So. Whether that's just a natural psychological thing or whether this can escalate to some of this anomalous phenomena that we, we talk about, uh, you know, I don't know, but I could, I can definitely say that I, I said I, I could feel it. We talked about the USS Arizona. Something I learned that I wasn't aware of until recently, and that is they were able to raise, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, they were, they were able to raise most of the, uh, the vessels. And, and repair them, and a lot of them went back into service. The USS Arizona, of course, remains at the bottom. It's this, uh, you know, it became the, the, this grave uh, for all those aboard. But I didn't realize that the men trapped in there, many of them were still right. tra- trapped and alive for up to two weeks later until they ran out of air. My word, what a horror. Right, and it's essentially a, a mass grave even today. Yes, but the fact that they were still alive for all that time right. and just ran out of air. Well, yeah, and you know, if we're going to talk about the, if we're going to talk about the USS North Carolina, there there's a similar story there, and it and and it relates back to what I said earlier about you know approaching this uh, these stories. You you have to be very careful uh, about how you present it because the USS North Carolina. Uh, was uh, a battleship and it was in the Pacific and it was hit by a torpedo. 
And um, the water started flooding in to this certain section of the USS North Carolina. And the the captain or, or whoever was in charge made the decision that they would have to close off different parts of the ship that weren't affected so that this water wouldn't, you know, flood the whole whole ship and sink it. So they closed up these areas and there were injured people in those sections of the the now flooded um, ship. And there were other people who were just stuck there, didn't know what was going on. And, you know, the most painful memory that a lot of these sailors talk about who were uh, on the North Carolina at the time, they talk about how they could hear the rapping and the uh you know, the muffled screams of these people uh, who were, you know, essentially doomed to drown. Oh, Lord. Uh, yeah. Do you remember the, that scene in uh, the movie Jaws and and uh, Robert Shaw's character, I believe his name was yes. Quinn, and he's they're comparing shark bites and so forth and scars, battle wounds, and he's telling Richard Dreyfus uh, the story of how he was on board the um, I forget the vessel that was delivering the bomb. The Indianapolis. The Indiana- Indianapolis. Yeah. Uh, and for those who don't know that story, I mean they they took a torpedo, they went down, and uh, it was a shark fest. I mean uh, that is one of the most intense um, moments I think in movie history. But it's it's true. It's a true story. Uh, do you talk about the the uh, the U.S. Indi- USS Indianapolis? I I do not talk about the Indianapolis uh, in in this book, but but yeah, th- I mean I, that just watching that scene, uh, it, it feels like that frames a lot of these stories. And uh, uh, I mean to live with that kind of terror. Uh, in the middle of the ocean, knowing that, you know, in the case of the Indianapolis, I think they were required to be out of radio contact because they were on this super secret mission. And that if you survive these attacks, then you, you know, then you're, you're basically shark bait. Yes. Uh, so a lot of those, that kind of vibe, uh, is, is throughout some of these stories. Uh, for me, I, I think a lot about the USS De Sullivans, which is a similar kind of story. Uh, and actually, the Sullivans, uh, the USS De Sullivans, the story behind it uh, was the was the uh, inspiration for Saving Private Ryan. And in this case, you have five brothers from Iowa, uh, the the Sullivan brothers, and there was Joseph Francis. Uh, Albert, Madison, and, and George, and they were on the USS Juno, uh, and uh, this was during the Battle of uh, Guadalcanal, and the Japanese submarine, just like the Indianapolis, uh, torpedoed it, and uh, some of the brother, I think one of the brothers made it out. When he found out that uh, his brothers died, he jumped off of the lifeboat and uh, started to swim towards the where the ship sank, and of course he was never seen before. Uh, the uh, kind of twist on this story is we'll never know whether the 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 Juno was haunted, but they renamed a boat. They named a boat the USS uh, the Sullivans after these brothers, and uh, it's now again it's one of these museum ships that's uh, in Buffalo Naval Park, and 
it, there are all sorts of ghost stories uh, revolving around it, including flying paint cans and people seeing ghosts, people being led on on tours of the boat by these ghostly figures. So it's it's quite a story. And again, I th- I think you sort of understand that this uh, this really heavy anxiety, the the terror involved in it gets. Uh, it, Inter, intermingles with these ghost stories. You can really feel it. It's a difference. Did you learn anything about the Second World War that you didn't know by researching this book? You know, I'm I'm always finding how wrong I am about history uh, when I start these because I I tend to have very strong biases uh, when I'm writing about music history or whether I'm writing about World War II history, and in this case. Uh, there are a few things that I'm, I'm thinking of right now where, uh, for instance, uh, before I wrote this book, I thought that uh, when I was going – I wanted to look into some of the Fordian occult aspects of war, especially World War II, and you, you know, probably inspired by Indiana Jones and some of these other movies, I had a deep bias that the occult movement – the occult uh, movements in Germany were what drove the Nazi party. I was sure of that. And I was also sure that the occult played no role in the Allied war effort because I think the Allied war effort would have been more traditional Christianity, things like that. What I found is is really almost a, a complete opposite of that. I walked away from writing this book um, somewhat – Believing now that that perhaps the occult movements like the Thule Society, uh, which was a uh, pre-World War II German occult group um, that had uh, significant racist ideology, and uh, uh, I think that maybe it inspired the Nazis, but I think at a certain point, Hitler decided he didn't want the competition, and so he really went after these occult groups and, and tried to get rid of them with uh with a, a lot of fervor and what i discovered also was that as far as the allies were concerned um there was quite a bit of occult activity aimed at stopping the war there was uh a group of uh, witches and wizards uh, wiccans early wiccans uh in england who formed uh, groups uh and actually went to a, a sacred site in uh, what was called operation cone of power this group got together and uh uh, conducted a few rites to try to stop the Germans from invading. Um, and then there's Dion Fortune, who also uh, would regularly send out uh, letters to her followers that urged them that a certain time period of every day should be spent meditating to try to stop the German powers. And in the United States, there was also the New Thought movement that was doing a lot of similar things. So my Entire bias flipped. I now think of uh, the occult being a pretty strong spiritual component of the Allied war effort, whereas I think the occult in Nazi Germany was suppressed to some degree. Let's go back to Hitler and occultism, because I think you know I, I've always always led to believe that he was an occultist. Certainly Himmler was, and we 
read about a lot of these strange initiation rites with the SS and so forth, um, involving the the spear of destiny, and and uh, this was supposedly the spear that pierced Christ's side, and all these things. But um, what about Aleister Crowley? Um, what is his connection with Hitler? Oh yeah, so my old buddy Alistair Crowley. Uh, you know, I wrote a lot about him in the Haunted Rock and Roll series. So I was very um, somewhat mystified to see him crop up in stories about World War II. But he he really figures in the center of two of the strangest stories in World War II history, uh, and the one is this uh, bizarre flight of Rudolf Hess. And Rudolf Hess was was, you know, literally Hitler's right hand man. Uh, uh, he was uh, a, a deputy Fuhrer and I think he was uh, I think he was involved in the Beer Hall Push. I think he served time with with uh, Hitler uh, when he was in jail. And during the war in the early part of the war, he was uh, considered, I think, the third uh in line if uh, Hitler was to be uh, incapacitated or killed. So he was a hardcore Nazi. He was also a hardcore occultist, which I think may be uh, a lot of the reasons why we, we equate Nazism with, with the occult. But his connection to Aleister Crowley was really interesting because it also – Aleister Crowley um, wanted to take part in the war effort in some way. And he actually, and I'm not really sure how this happened, but he gets connected with Ian Fleming, who goes on to be the, the writer for, uh, the James Bond series and one of my favorites, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, but in any event, Alistair Crowley and Ian Fleming form this partnership. And there's a couple different stories, but one story is that Ian Fleming, who was at the time working for the, the British Secret Service, asked Crowley to um, – he commissioned Crowley to do a spell to get uh, at Hitler and get some of his deputies. And so according to Crowley, he did a spell that uh, put a dream in Rudolf Hess's head that he should leave – Germany and go on a peace mission to England. And lo and behold, uh, you know, Rudolf Hess, uh, gets in his, uh, fighter plane and, and goes to, um, England and he crash lands or parachutes in. He is taken into custody and Crowley, of course, uh, not, uh, you know, was never one to be modest, said that that is exactly what the spell was was for. Now, the other story is that Ian Fleming asked Aleister Crowley to write some uh, astrological prophecies that he would get into Nazi Germany because some of these Nazi rulers were um, were avid astrologists so that they would believe this. So there are those two stories. There is... Um, an account, and uh, I think it was Albert Speer who said that it was a dream that caused Rudolf Hess to leave uh, Germany and go on this kind of bizarre peace mission to uh, to England. So that's one story about Aleister Crowley that I found fascinating. Uh, 
that that dealt with World War II. Right. The right. other is that he inspired the the Churchill V for Victory sign, which is uh, a, a, according to Crowley was um, one of his uh, occult signs that he had written about before. That is to ward off evil, uh, and so it's almost like Churchill was somehow like. Uh, giving uh, giving the Nazis the finger every time he he <laughs> threw that up. Fascinating. I had no idea. You mentioned Hess. He believed that he, as you say, was on a secret peace mission. Had Edward the Eighth? Oh, Edward the Eighth had abdicated by then. But but he was pretty cozy with the Fuhrer, wasn't he? I mean, did well. Is, he, he, yeah, yeah, and he was, uh, you know, a, a Nazi sympathizer, uh, and even visited, uh, uh, Nazi troops. So, um, I didn't talk a lot about him in this. In fact, I don't even mention him, but yeah, that was another possible connection that, that Hess might have been looking for. Right, that he probably thought he would have been welcomed by the, uh, by the royals. And it's also interesting to point out that Hitler's reaction after after this secret peace mission on Hess's part is to completely crack down on fortune tellers, astrologers, the occult, all of those uh, those groups. And it gets I think that's where I start to see that, um, you know, I just I just don't think Hitler had any room for competition. And so. He was a complete narcissist. He thought he was uh, God, not these other occultists. Right. Fascinating. Matt, how do we get a hold of the book? Well, the, uh, the best place is to go to uh, Amazon.com or go to Barnes & Noble's, BNN.com. Uh, and if you have a favorite bookstore, please ask him to bring it in. If you read it and like it, I would love to, for you to uh, give me a review on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. Terrific. Stay with us. We'll come back and continue to delve into Haunted World War II. Matt Swain, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Back with more in a moment. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. This is London Court. Here is a new flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. Matt Swain stays with us. Haunted World War II. Soldier spirits, ghost planes, and strange synchronicities. We were talking before the break about the occult and how perhaps the occultic connection to the Nazis has been sort of overstated, and yet the mm -hmm. occultic influences with the Allies was underplayed. But did he consult astrologists in terms of planning battles and so forth? There's not a lot of evidence that he used it in that respect. I get the impression, and again, this is just an impression, that he was influenced early on by these occult movements. I have heard stories about how he used to go to the museum, I think in Vienna, and look at the Spear of Destiny and meditate on it. So it's an interesting question of just how deeply he felt. I mean, there's just not a lot of evidence, in, in my opinion. And what about Himmler and the SS? It seemed to me Himmler was deeply influenced by Teutonic mythology. And so I think in that respect, he was uh, influenced by the occult. 
And again, I, I think he just saw that as a alternative mythology to the traditional Christianity. I want to talk about UFOs. This is before Kenneth Arnold and, and so forth. I don't even know if they were called UFOs back then. They were called Foo Fighters. When did Foo Fighters first sort of enter, you know, the lexicon and, and public consciousness during the war? Actually, the Foo Fighters, and, and I try to make the point that the modern UFO movement, and I'm sure there's other people who know a lot more about it than me, but the UFO movement as a phenomenon really starts in World War II with, as you mentioned, these Foo Fighters. And Foo Fighters start, I would say, in the middle of the war, let's say 43, 44, you start getting these accounts because at this point, there are a lot of planes in Europe, over Europe, in Germany. And these reports start coming back more and more. And they come from really all different strata of these aviators. And that's the point I want to make is that, you know, for me to go out and look up in the sky and misidentify, you know, a light in the sky, I think is pretty easy and pretty reasonable assumption that I can do that. But these guys were trained observers. And not only are they trained observers, their lives depend on it and their lives of being able to determine whether it's a friendly plane or a fighter, an enemy plane are critical to the lives of their comrades as well. So, you know, when you read these reports, it's not just like, you know, the average guy, the average girl going out and seeing a light flash by the sky. These are trained observers who know what they're looking at, know the aerodynamics of all the different airframes out there. So it, to me, became very convincing that they were having encounters with something. Now, whether it was a secret Nazi weapon or whether it was something from another planet, I think is something that continues to be debated. But there's one story of a B-17 crew, kind of what they call a lone wolf mission, coming back from a bombing run all alone, watches this light maneuver with the B-17 for, I think, up to about 40 minutes and then eventually disappear, in their words, almost in a flash. And the other kind of famous story that comes out of World War II, and again, we're talking probably 1944, is a group of night fighters. And here is another group of extremely trained observers in the sky who have these run-ins with objects that seem to have abilities that no plane in the air at that time had or maybe even have now. But these lights were moving in and out of formations. And so you really get the impression that these stories circulate because not only is it completely strange, but also you have quality, credible witnesses. Were the Foo Fighters seen primarily in the European theater or were they also seen in the Pacific theater? Well, that's another thing that, uh, you know, you mentioned whether I learned anything. Now, going into this book, I knew about the Foo Fighters in Europe, but I did find several accounts, I think in a VFW magazine, by the way, of Foo Fighters seen over the South Pacific. One was a, a B-29 bomber crew who, again, saw this strange light, and apparently it was so close to them that they at one point thought it might run into the tail of the plane. And then there was another crew 
uh, saw these lights streaming out of a Japanese-held island. And at the beginning, they thought it was some type of drone aircraft. And there were a couple types of that happening in the war. But then quickly realized that just by the way it was maneuvering, it, it couldn't have been an airplane. And, and they wondered whether this wasn't some type of secret weapon. And these kamikaze attacks had definitely shaken a lot of the aviators at that time. So they were wondered whether it was a, a new type of secret kamikaze weapon. And were they seen only by Allied pilots or were they seen by the Germans and the Japanese as well? That's a great question. I don't think I included any accounts of German and Japanese pilots, but it seems to me that there were accounts of planes or, or aviators from other nations seeing these strange aircraft. And do we know where we get the name Foo Fighters? Actually, it might be related to a catchphrase of a, of a comic strip, as I recall, uh, that occurred during that, that time. All right, let's take a time out. When we come back, let's talk about the Battle of Los Angeles. Are you good for that? I am. Terrific. Matt Swain, Haunted World War II. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. This is Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Uh, let me read you several of the latest bulletins. One says that a report, unconfirmed by allied sources, of course, says that heavy fighting is taking place between the Germans and invasion forces on the Normandy Peninsula, about 31 miles southwest of Le Havre. Another bulletin, also from Berlin Radio and unconfirmed, says the British-American landing operations against the western coast of Europe, from the sea and from the air, are stretching over the entire area between Cherbourg and Le Havre, a distance of about 60 miles. I repeat, there is no confirmation. Matt Swain stays with us. Haunted World War II. Soldier spirits, ghost planes, and strange synchronicities. Uh, we want to talk now about the Battle of Los Angeles. Uh, so, obviously, tensions are, are very high uh, in, the, uh, in the U.S. Uh, on the West Coast. Uh, because Pearl Harbor has happened, what, just several several weeks prior or months prior mm -hmm. to, this, to this incident. So set the stage for us. What happened and when? This was February 24th and 25th of 1942. So, again, right after uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, America is rapidly um, ramping up the war effort, uh, and they're in in it for good. And uh, you also find that now you have a lot of civilians who are getting involved in things like coastal patrols and, you know, everyone is alert. Everyone is very keyed up. Uh, and the way the story kind of unfolds is that 
unexpectedly one night these anti-aircraft batteries that that allegedly rapidly went up around Los Angeles started to open up on an unknown object and you know i some of the accounts that i've read the people rapidly go through what it could possibly be uh and right at the top of the list is that it's enemy fighters now coming in to attack los angeles um but they also some other people just thought it was a drill but what what happens uh, and if you ever see the movie 1941 with John Belushi, one of the classics, it, it gives you this idea of the, the pandemonium that, that hit right after this, uh, these anti-aircraft batteries opened up. Uh, people thought they were being invaded and so went into almost a, a sheer panic. Uh, so after this attack occurs, the War Department quickly puts out uh, you know, communications that this was war jitters, that there was nothing really to it. There was nothing in the air. Uh, it was just essentially a big mistake. However, there are some very credible sources who say that there actually was something in the sky that night. What it was, they, they really don't know. There's a famous picture of this huge illuminated object, uh, in the center of uh, a, f- a few spotlights, and they and uh, uh, from all those accounts at that time, the gun crews were aiming at that whatever it was in the middle of those spotlights. And I found particularly uh, the account of uh, he was a professor of anthropology at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Uh, later on, at this point, he's just a boy. Uh, and he, he recently passed away. His name's C. Scott Littleton. I read his account and used it in the book. But what he said was uh, his dad was an air warden, air raid warden, and his dad said there was no drills. So they knew it wasn't a drill. And he and his mother walked out, and apparently some of the, the – they could hear some of the uh, anti-aircraft shells hitting the water and hitting nearby. But he distinctly saw a huge – uh, illuminated object that was hovering in the air with no noise and then seemed impervious to these massive amounts of anti-aircraft artillery and uh, bullets being shot at projectiles being shot at it and then it lazily drifted uh, uh, off the coast and, and into California without a scar and a lot of the other accounts that I found sort of corroborated that so here you have a, a a pretty credible witnesses who says it wasn't war jitters, that there was actually something in the sky that night. Now, whether it was a dirigible that was uh, untethered was one, one possible reason or whatever it was, but it seems like it was more than just war jitters. All right, when we come back, we'll talk about the uh, Philadelphia experiment. Matt Swain, Haunted World War II, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From the NBC Newsroom in New York, 
President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. Matt Swain is with us for a spell yet, and we continue to delve into his uh, fascinating brand new book, Haunted World War II, Soldier Spirits, Ghost Planes, and Strange Synchronicities. And uh, this is one of the strangest uh, stories, really, one of the greatest legends, perhaps, uh, of all time. Uh, This also happened during the war in 1943, uh, involving this U.S. uh, Navy destroyer, uh, or an escort, rather, the USS Eldridge. And um, people claimed that it had been rendered invisible uh, during some strange experiment. Some say Nik- Nikola Tesla was involved. So let's let's talk about the, the Philadelphia experiment. Just uh, give us sort of a thumbnail sketch of what happened. Well, the thumbnail sketch is that, as you mentioned, this escort Eldridge, USS Eldridge, and this was you know the the ship itself was launched in July twenty fifth, nineteen forty three. And it was docked in the Philadelphia Naval Yard. And, and this, this is a very strange story because it gets passed down and around through different, a few different figures who, who sort of champion this idea. But essentially, you know, this, this ship is uh, in the, in the Naval Yard one moment and the next minute it's gone. And then later it reappears. There are horrendous stories about uh, the the sailors on board are melted into the the ship itself, and so these stories get get kind of passed around um, uh, to a to a few really key figures uh, uh, in this, including uh, one of the researchers. Morris Jessup, and you've probably heard about him. Uh, you know, he had the book, The Case for the UFO, and he was sort of into this. And so, yeah, there's, there's just a very strange story of a ship appearing one minute and then becoming invisible. Some of the accounts say that it was teleported. Um, there's a story that, uh, another naval vessel was, uh, was out to sea and they saw this ship appear and then disappear again. So it's really kind of a, a strange story that gets weirder and weirder with every kind of account that I read about it. Well, again, this could be a, a situation where things are being sort of conflated because apparently there was some sort of an experiment going on, whether it involved the, the Eldridge or not, but the idea was it was supposed to be Rendered not vis- invisible to the naked eye, but invisible to, um, to, to radar detection. So, yes. um, is it possible that that was sort of the intent, but something went terribly awry? And did it involve, is there any evidence that, uh, the Nikola Tesla was involved in this experiment? Yeah. And again, this kind of goes back to what I believe and then what I came away after writing it, uh, because, you know, I have always read about the Philadelphia experiment and I remember, you know, the famous Charles Berlitz, uh, uh, book about it. I read that a couple times. Uh, so what I came away with was that it might be that there was an experiment to render the ship invisible to torpedoes and that as that got passed through, the and, and that seems to be historically accurate. 
but as it gets passed through the ranks and, and goes, uh, it, it turns into almost like one of these bizarre telephone games where the facts get more and more, uh, you know, mixed up and, and as you say, conflated. Uh, so I didn't find any evidence that Tesla was there, although he was certainly mentioned in a lot of the rumors. And there's even stories about Albert Einstein uh, and quantum physicists, which I I kind of find hard to believe. I don't know whether, uh, you know, from what I know about Einstein is he was um, uh, he was kind of a critic of quantum theory. So I don't think he would have been uh, the type who would have designed an experiment to teleport an entire ship. When right now we can only do it uh, maybe on the molecular level. So really interesting, but it was one of those stories that I I was actually more confused after I wrote it than I was before. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, the the idea, I guess, that it, that uh, that they were experimenting and and supposedly there were these giant Tesla coils on board and they created these enormously powerful electromagnetic uh, fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, somehow the, the the vessel was transported from Philadelphia to Norfolk, Virginia, and back again in uh, in an instant. And uh, some people even suggest that because of this experiment, they opened up some sort of a uh, I don't know some sort of a portal or whatever, and and that is responsible. The Philadelphia experiment is responsible for all of the UFO activity we've had because because they've opened up I don't know this interdimensional portal or something. Have you heard that? I I I heard that. I, I read that. It was mentioned a couple times, uh, and I have to say that the timeline does kind of match up with uh, all of a sudden the appearance of Foo Fighters. Uh, appearing over Europe and apparently over the South Pacific. So I did hear that. Um, and honestly, Tesla, I could see him involved in something like this. Einstein, I'm not so sure about. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Let's talk about curses. World War II curses. And there's one called the Curse of Tamerlane. Mm-hmm. T- tell me about the Curse of Tamerlane. So Tamerlane was an ancient warrior and his tomb was in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, and uh, there was quite an effort from uh, Russian or Soviet archaeologists to uncover uh, his tomb. But the f- the people of Samarkand said that there was a curse attached to the tomb. And, you know, I don't know whether they were there because they were archaeologists or because they wanted to raid the tomb. Uh, but in any event, um, and the curse was that if if any anyone disturbed his grave, that uh, basically there would be uh, held pay. Uh, but um, on June twentieth, I think, uh, nineteen forty one, a team of Soviet archaeologists rolled the stone from the burial vault and actually entered the warrior's burial chamber. They removed uh, Tamerlane's body. And uh, sent it to the Soviet Union. And I mentioned June 20th, 1941, because that is exactly before uh, Hitler decides to invade Russia. And it does become, uh, you know, quote unquote, hell on earth for the, the Soviet people as the, the Nazis invaded and probably one of the most ruthless, bloody campaigns uh, in world history. Uh, and I, I think when they opened the tomb and by the time they removed the body, I think it was two days 
uh, between the, that point and when the Nazis invaded. Uh, so uh, the the curse of Tamerlane apparently is what uh, a lot of people feel that uh, that uh, signaled the invasion of uh, of Russia. The other part of this is that uh, eventually Stalin sends the body back and the uh, the the body of Tamerlane is returned to his gravesite and that is about the same time that the Nazis uh won Stalingrad and is the key battle that turns the tide against the Nazis and led to the Soviet victory fascinating i'm wondering if that curse was in play when Napoleon tried to do the the same thing and attack uh Russia in the winter right Right. Yeah, I, I don't have any information on that. Uh, but I, I think the uh, Russian winter helped out considerably, Absolutely, too. Absolutely, yeah. That had a big part of it. Uh, that was a definitely uh, uh, on uh, on the Russian side. We didn't talk about one of the most famous battles in World War II, and that was the Battle of Dieppe. You have a story in there about Dieppe. This is before the U.S. entered the war. Right. Dieppe is basically seen as a as a uh, trial run of Normandy. And apparently the Allies learned a lot of lessons there because uh, uh, it was a, a kind of a, a huge mistake uh, and, and led to a lot of Allied, Allied deaths. But the story here is that after the war, years after the war, a family uh, was vacationing uh, in Dieppe uh, they were English and they came, they uh, were summering in, in Dieppe. And uh, one night, uh, the one woman in the family heard a tremendous racket, which sounded like people screaming. Uh, and this uh, woke up some of the other folks in the family, too, who then heard uh, what sounded like gunfire. And there were uh, uh, German commands. They heard German commands. And then later, uh, they said that they went out to observe what was going on and it, and it quieted down. And then a few hours later, they heard what they said sounded like dive bombers or air, aircraft going overhead as well. And so again, they go out and look around and, and there's, there's no sign of any human, uh, at least living human activity. So the, the one woman goes back, the one witness goes back. And she gives the information to the Psychical Society in England who begin an investigation. And what I found kind of interesting about this is that when they did this investigation and got her timeline, the timeline that she was talking about, about the shouts, the gunfire, the delayed action, and then the aircraft, and, and again, more sounds of cannon fire and whatnot, seem to match up to the exact uh, uh, timeline of the battle. In fact, it sort of underlies some of the key mistakes the Allies made because allegedly, from what I've read, the invasion was – or the it was more of like a commando raid was not properly timed, not integrated, and that the, the commandos hit the beach – uh, and when they hit the beach, the, the planes were supposed to also attack and help soften up some of the defenses, but that didn't happen, and they arrived much, much too late. So it seems like what this family, these two families, uh, Dieppe, uh, experienced match up pretty closely with uh, what um, what the actual timeline of the battle 
um, rolled out. You know, it's it's uh, as you said earlier. This is a wonderful way uh, to introduce young people to the history of World War II, and for young people that find history kind of dry and, and uninteresting, by 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 telling it the history through ghost stories is a, is a incredibly uh, effective entree into uh, into the history of uh, of the Second World War, and and you are to be congratulated for doing this. But- Thank you very much. I think the other thing for me is that uh, these stories also serve as, uh, you know, a warning because a lot of, of these stories um, um, serve as cautionary tales about um, the the uh, the struggles in war, the terror of war, the sacrifice. All of that are embedded in these stories. And as I always say, you know, if tomorrow – Someone proves to me that ghosts don't exist. I, I still think that ghost stories are important. I myself remain an open-minded skeptic. I just feel more of, of a medium to try to get this information out. Matt, Happy New Year, and thank you so much for hanging out for two hours. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Matt Swain. Now, I'll be back with brand new shows in 2019. Wishing you all a happy new year. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.